It's so good to be together this morning to celebrate the life of the resurrected king. Um, we're going to just dive right in this morning. Um, we've got a special guest. My friend Richard McAdams is going to come. We're going to just talk a little bit this morning about resurrection of life and hope in the city. Uh, but we're in this series uh, called... God in the city. This is week five, signs of hope in the city. You can check out the rest of these messages. I'm not going to take the time to explain where we've been now, except for the fact that the Lord has placed this congregation in a city. And ministry in the city is a beautiful thing, and it's a really, really complex thing. Cities are complex, but they're designed by God, and God designed believers, followers of Jesus, to spend time serving people in the city. People are moving to cities at unprecedented rates around the world. That's a global phenomenon, and it's in the Bible, too. The Bible begins in a garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, and the Bible ends in a new Jerusalem, in a new city at the end of Revelation. The Bible starts in a garden and it moves towards a city. People are moving to cities. God has a plan for cities and it includes us. And so it's important as a church in a city to take time to talk about how God works in a city because cities can be scary and some people think cities are dying, right? But I think cities are coming to life because of the resurrection power of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Don't let the enemy tell you that cities are dying outright. Is there sin? Is there brokenness? Is there suffering in the city? Yes, we can't deny that. But God is alive and he wants to use us. He doesn't need to use us. He could and everything would be fine. But for some reason in his kingdom, he decided that he wanted by his grace to use you and me to be his hope in the city. It's a beautiful thing. That he's called us as reconcilers, as ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. And that is the good news of the gospel. The gospel. In the Greek, evangelion, it's good news. That's what the gospel means. In fact, in the New Testament, the word gospel is used 101 times. 101 times times throughout 27 books in the new testament good news good news what is the good news the good news is that jesus paid our insurmountable debt for us he did it nothing outside of him in no other place in no other name and no other person can we find redemption and salvation from the sin that plagues us and I, I'm certain of this because I've discovered it with the help of friends that I will never, would never have been able to fully grasp this good news. And we're always grasping more of it. It's a progressive revelation. It's not like we get to one day when we're 43 years old and think, that's it. Everything that God wants to give to me, I've received already. It's every day we wake up, he has something more for us, something else that he wants to transform in us, because the word says that we are working out our salvation, working out our salvation, not earning it, but working it out. That means wrestling with God for it, working out our salvation daily. We come to him and say, God, there's more you want to do in us. But the good news will never become fully the good news until we have taken proper inventory of the very lowest depths of our brokenness. That's what we get to do in recovery circles. We call it a fourth step. If people get to the 12-step process, a lot of people get to three, and they feel okay, and they get to four, and they stop for a year or eight. Because the fourth step says we're supposed to take a fearless moral inventory of our whole life. Whoa. 
We're supposed to go back and look at everything that's ever happened so that we can give it to God. Not so that he can beat us over the head with it. We don't serve a God that wants to beat us over the head with our sin. If we did, I'd be dead by now. Maybe some of you would as well, but God is alive and he wants to redeem us. He wants to restore us. And he says, go take a look. Look at everything that I've redeemed. I'm just about that powerful and more. I'm more powerful to defeat all of your sin and to raise you up. But you've got to look at it. You've got to be honest with yourself if you're going to receive the fullness of the redemption that I have for you. So in his very first sermon... He kicks it off like this on a hillside. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. Those who understand that their greatest poverty in life is a spiritual one. That without God's grace every day, we will not make it. Our greatest poverty isn't about how much money we got in our wallets or how big our houses are or what street we live on. If the king comes right now, none of that matters. It just matters if we've given it all to God, because we're poor. Without Him, I got nothing. So blessed are those who are poor in spirit. When you are poor in spirit and you inherit the kingdom of heaven, we begin to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. What are they mourning? They're mo- we're mourning our sin. If we do a fourth step and get to the end of it, we're going to stop pointing fingers at people because we're going to be like, I'm just so glad you saved me. We're going to come alongside sinners and say, bro, you look like me. Can, I, can we walk towards Jesus together? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Comforted. We want real comfort? It comes in mourning our sin. Not eating more food like I do, or watching more Netflix like I sometimes do, or gambling, or sleeping around, or whatever it happens to be. That's not where the comfort is. The comfort is mourning all of that brokenness and walking in freedom. Amen? Amen. Amen. This is what we get to do. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? It doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean that you're some little fuzzy Easter bunny running around hiding eggs on the ground. That's not what it means. It means that we have an accurate view of ourselves. In light of our sin, in light of his grace, we can walk in power and in humility at the same time but not without it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn their sin. Blessed are those for meek who have an accurate view of themselves. Jesus was most readily approached by those who wore their sins on their outsides. That's who came to Jesus the most was people who had their sin all over the sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and people caught in adultery and all sorts of stuff. People that were half-breed citizens of a Jewish kingdom that struggled with racism. Medieval racism. It's still sin. It's garbage. It's filth. People that struggled with that were the ones that ran to Jesus. Others who view Jesus as a threat to their own self-righteousness. Happy Sunday. I'm blessed, blessed brother. I'm blessed. I got it all together. No. That's who Jesus came and yelled at through all four of the Gospels. Not because he didn't love them, but because, hey, wake up. This isn't about your own self-righteousness. Those who viewed him as a threat kept their distance. But to those with an accurate view of themselves, those who were beloved sinners saved by grace, who had nothing but their hands to put out, their dirty, filthy, begging hands, and said, put the gospel, put the grace of Jesus right here. That's the kingdom. 
that's coming. It's the kingdom that's here because of the power of the Holy Spirit who is in us. Mm, That's good stuff. The gospel is good news that leads to good action. Good news to good action. The gospel must be more than good advice. It has to be more than a good idea. Too many people following Jesus sort of have stopped with, oh, that's a neat idea. That's a good, here, let me give you some advice. Let me tell you how to look really spiritual on the outside, even though you're a mess on the inside. Let me give you some advice. The gospel is more than good advice. It's good news that leads to good action. The gospel is more than good advice. It is good news that leads to good action. Amen. Right? Amen. It is good news that leads to good action. Jesus did more than die on a cross. If he just died on a cross, it's insufficient. It makes him like every other rebel rouser revolutionary that ever lived. If he died on a cross and didn't raise from the dead, he's no different than a bunch of other really good people. A lot of really good people have died for their cause. Some really good ones. We could name a hundred. But none of them raised from the dead like my King Jesus. Not a single one raised from the dead like King Jesus raised from the dead. Right? So here's the reality. Apart from God, we are overcome by insurmountable sin. That's reality. Right? Four things here. The, uh, here's a good idea. Hey, what if God sent his son to die in my place so I wouldn't have to live apart from God anymore? Hmm. That's a good idea. We can't stop there. Is it enough to stop there? No. The good news is that Jesus came as a man whom in the fullness of God was present. All of God was present in Jesus. The Bible tells us so. He was fully God. He was fully man. All of God was in him. He came to fully understand every aspect of human emotion. That's why he came. He went to the cross and he scorned its shame. And then he rose from the grave, defeated sin, ascended into heaven, and sent his spirit so that he would not just live next to us, he would live in us, so that we could do even greater things than he did. The Bible says that too. Isn't that incredible? But what about this, that we could do greater things than he did? There's a reality, there's a good idea, there's good news, and then there's good action, that we might do even more than he did. Am I using my freedom Am I using the humility that I've found when I have mourned my sin with my begging hands and finding other people with begging hands like me and saying, follow after me, the king of all kings? Is that part of what I'm doing? Is that the good action? Am I using my time in the city to help others find the same freedom that I have found? Good question that we each get to ask ourselves every day. Am I using my day to the fullest Am I? I would suggest the good news is that many, many people in this room, I love this church, many people in this room are using that freedom every day. So we're doing it. Let's go inspire others to do it. Let us spur others on towards love and good deeds. So we tend to tell good stories, good news, right? We share good news about things that have either happened to us that were good and unexpected or things that we know that are coming that are good and unexpected. Hey, I got a new job. You ever tell somebody you got a new job? Multimedia websites and social media apps are de- dedicated to telling people that we got new jobs. Every day. Every day. 
Hey, got a new job. Been in my job four years. Congratulations on your new job. We do. It's good news. We share the good news. We got a new job. Hey, I aced my test. Hey, we found our cat. I don't have a cat, but you know, if I did and we lost it, the Groves lost a turtle a month ago and they found the turtle was gone for a year, guys. The Groves' turtle was gone for a year and they found it. That was good news. That was good news. My friend is coming to visit. That's good news. We have all this good news. But to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ is to do more than tell some good news about what we know. That's why Christianity stinks when it gets delivered sometimes. That's why the gospel stinks when it gets delivered sometimes. Not because it's not a good message. It is the best message. Sometimes the package we deliver the message in, I would suggest, stinks. Ever come in contact with someone who had a really great message in a really wretched package? Don't take me down that trail right now. I'm not even going. Help me, Jesus. (laughs) The point. Sharing the good news of Jesus is more than sharing what we know. It's more than convincing others to think or believe just like us. Or we won't be in relationship with you. It's about being so profoundly overcome by what we've received in exchange for our sin. When I say it's so profoundly overcome, means that we have found the places when we are poor in spirit. We have done the fourth step, the fearless moral inventory, and we are mourning and weeping and pleading our sin before the throne of Jesus We are then so profoundly moved by the thing that we got from him that we couldn't earn that our interactions with every single person that we came in contact with in our communities, in our cities that were just like us, every person we came in contact with, we said, hey, you're like me. I'm like you. We're like each other. We are so overwhelmed by this profound grace that it moves out of our head, it moves into our hearts, and then as Wayne Cadero, a pastor in Hawaii, would like to say it, from our hearts it bleeds down into our feet and out of our toes, the grace of God. Head, heart, feet, toes, out, go. How good, how good is it, the feet, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? That's in the Bible, too. The Bible's got a bunch of good stuff in it. Man. And it applies to us. The best news, I was dead and now I'm alive. Richard Scott, you were dead. Now you're alive and we can be alive together. And so help me, we're going to get that ferry ride in here pretty quick. We're going to go be in relationship with each other and celebrate the goodness of God that we were dead and now we're not because of him. Right? Because of him. I was blind and now I clearly see this kind of gospel is worth sharing with everybody without hesitation because there's no shame attached to it. It's only my humble story of brokenness and his glory that sets me free. That's it. That's it. Mm. 1 Corinthians 15. Where's my Bible? Here it is. Corinth. This is towards the end of the Bible, and we know that when we got closer to the end of the Bible, there were more uh, cities. You guys like cities? Cities are good places. Corinth was a city. Tell you a little bit about Corinth. Paul, who was 
the self-proclaimed worst scripture in all of the Bible, sorry, the worst sinner of all in the Bible, wrote this letter to a church that had gathered in the city of Corinth about 54 A.D., some 20 years after Jesus had died on the cross, resurrected and ascended into heaven. This was roughly three years after that church was planted, 20 years after Jesus died, that Paul writes a letter because the church is a little bit confused about some stuff. Imagine that, church being confused about something. Right? There was Corinth, ancient Corinth. Let's see the next picture. So it's still around. It's like a real place. This is a big thing. When we decide that the things, the stories, the fairy tales in the Bible, when we get our head wrapped around the fact that they're not fairy tales, that it's the truth, that they're real places with real names and real faces, this is Corinth. It's a place. All of this is historical fact. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead, we'll talk about it's historical fact, but Corinth is still there, this city that he wrote to. Another picture, put that up of Corinth, the map of Corinth. Corinth was located in a really, really strategic place. At the time, it was a church that was filled with mostly Gentiles, people like you and me who weren't Jewish, who in God's big story were uh, the people like many of us who got adopted into God's family. We were all adopted because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're not Jewish. Maybe some of us are. We're not, I'm not Hebrew. I'm not a Jew. But I'm a Gentile, which means that God's oldest friends are the Jews. And then when Jesus came and the Spirit came, he extended that grace to every person on the planet. And he wants to use the Jews, still using the Jews to deliver that message, believe it or not. That's a different message. But in God's big plan, we were adopted in to the cross. The hope of Jesus became for every single person in this message like cities like Jerusalem and Corinth were spinning out and amplifying where the message is that God's grace is for everybody. This was strategic because there's a port. You can actually go on the Internet and look for the port that goes right in between here, and there's ships that go through, and there's like this room on each side, this much room. But there's ways to get through here, shipping ports, ways to spin out merchandise and messages about the grace of God and everything else. But cities are designed to amplify the message of God's grace. This was a strategic placement for a church. Corinth was a major metropolitan city. It was a seaport, a major trade center. People from all over the world gathered in Corinth like they do in major cities today. People from all over the world were gathering. And by the world at that point, the world was much smaller. The world was just, I mean, people were, that was like the hub. Most activity was coming in and out of that region of the world in the Middle East. But people from all over that part of the world were gathering They were there in the church at Corinth. They were new followers of Jesus. They wrestled with corruption. They wrestled with immorality in the environment that they found themselves in. Anybody in that group struggling with trying to just follow Jesus in the world that God puts you in? Me. This is a hard place to follow Jesus. There's everything else wants my attention except the thing that I need to give it to, which is him. I want to be more in line with him. But culture is calling my name. And that's why I need God's grace. They were new followers of Jesus, and the lust, the impurity, the evil desires of the city hung like a smog in the air. And so Paul wrote this letter, and he asked them a question. He was responding to a question. How do I live in a city? How do I love my neighbor like Jesus said to love my neighbor? How do I build relationships in a city without adopting all of its practices? This stuff is good for us. How do I do that? 
And more than placing judgment on this corrupt city, this is what I love about Paul. He didn't blame, he didn't yell at the the city that the people were in. He gracefully addressed the church concerning its struggles. He didn't talk about the immorality of the city. He talked about the immorality of the church in the city. Isn't that a beautiful grace if we clean up our side of the street first? Isn't it a beautiful grace if we say, I got to get me figured out. And then, and then maybe you can join me and you can get you figured out and we can get each other figured out together. Not codependently, not independently, not dependently, but interdependently. We can help each other figure out our mess and hold our hands open. And we don't even have to beg anymore. God just gives us grace. We don't have to plead for it anymore. He just gives it to us freely. The gospel was never about pointing fingers. It's always been about modeling a dependence on the grace of Jesus. A.J. Swoboda, a four-square pastor in Portland, says it this way. He says, following Jesus is about drowning in an ocean of grace and inviting others to watch. Wow, what a beautiful picture to say. I'm going down in this thing. <laughs> you can, you can, I'll send out an Evite. I mean, whatever. Like, well, I'm going to drown in this grace and you can watch. And maybe you want to come drown in it with me so that we can have new life in Christ. In this letter, Paul talks about unity and conflict resolution. He talks about marriage and sexuality. He addresses worship. He addresses communion. He talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are made available to us. This is good stuff for today. And then he talks about resurrection from the dead right at the end. Given that today is Easter, happy Easter, he is risen. Amen. Given that today is Easter, our celebration of Jesus' resurrection, his victory over sin, I want to take a minute today and just investigate the claims of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul discusses the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, good question. Why would Paul write to the church at Corinth about Jesus' resurrection? Good questions to ask when we look at Scripture. Paul was responding, in fact, to some of those who were part of the church in Corinth who had started to wonder if it was actually true. Did Jesus really? No, he couldn't have. It was a metaphor. He did. He couldn't. It's just too hard if he did because I got to reconcile my sin. But more and more, the problems of Corinth are the problems of today. More and more people in cities and communities, those who have followed Jesus, are now wondering. Maybe you've wondered. Feel free to wonder. By the way, please do not stop wondering. Please do not coming to other people. Stop coming to other people with our questions about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. If you're wondering about it, come and talk to us, because that's a grace-filled conversation about why I think that he actually did raise from the grave. But people in Corinth were wondering if he actually did. The Gospels of Matthew, the good news of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, they all tell resurrected stories of a religious leader's daughter. The Gospel of John tells a story about the resurrection of Jesus' friend Lazarus. Resurrection from the dead was like a thing with Jesus, even before his own. But all four Gospels, praise God, tell us about the resurrection of Jesus from the tomb. All four of them. Main point, again, the Gospel must be more than good advice or a good idea. Hey, what if he could rise from the grave? It has to be more. It has to be good news. The fact that he did. That Jesus Christ rose from the grave. The Gospel is good news that must inspire good action. So we're going to look at this a little bit at a time. This, this chapter is like 70 verses, so I'm going to read them all. We're going to pick, pick some highlights from this chapter and talk about them. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 
8, Jesus talking to the Corinthians concerning their questions about whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead. Paul says to the church, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold to it firmly the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I have received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, And then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living, although some had fallen asleep or had passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and the last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now what Paul is saying is that there was no sinner worse than me. And my birth, new birth in Christ was different than all yours because I was such a sinner. It was weird, bro. That's what Paul is saying. He goes, I was so broken and God saved me. It was an abnormal birth. But don't you ever wander away from the truth of the gospel that I preached to you. Stand firmly upon the gospel. What is the gospel? That Jesus was buried in the tomb risen, and then everybody saw him. Hold on to that in your head for a minute as to why this is actually true. But the question, the observation from this portion of the text is how good is your good news? How good is your good news? Think about, for you, the good news that you share, the good news that we share. How good is that news? It makes me ask this question. What is at the bedrock of all the best news that we carry with us? What is at the bottom of it that makes it really, really good. So I got a new job. I'll probably lose it someday. But I got a cat. He'll probably die too, right? My friend came to visit, and then they left. Like this, so All that stuff is good news, but it ain't good news that's going to fix everything. Circumstances come and go, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is firm. It's firm. It's good for building on. Is the good news enough to carry me through the toughest circumstances in life? You hang out in a city very long and you're adamant about sharing the love of God with everybody, you're going to run into situations that are going to make you question whether or not God is good because evil exists also. It will drive you to the core and I hope it does because this, when you come to a point of crisis and wonder is God good, the gospel will tell you that it is because he delivers his children. He delivers his children. He sets them free. Do not be afraid of sin and evil in the world and whether or not it validates Jesus' existence and his resurrection from the dead. But let's test it for the, for the moment. Did some people wake up this morning and turn on the MSN on the internet and find out that 138 people had lost their lives in Sri Lanka because some bombs went off in a church 15 hours ago? When we gathered here on Friday night, this hadn't even happened. When I had dinner last night, this hadn't even happened. And I woke up, and more filth, more evil, more darkness. 138 people dead. Churches. Yesterday, I got on the Facebook, and I saw my friend Tom Gordon shouldn't say friend, I should say colleague, and I don't know him real well, but Tom Gordon, right there with his family, you can see him. He was a drug addict saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Now he's a pastor. 
He's got kids, a family, everything's going awesome until he finds out that he has stage four cancer all over his body. And so he posted a 10 minute video on Facebook the other day and essentially said, guess what? I got cancer, but I serve a resurrected king. And I bet you, Tom, I know he is. He's preaching right now in Edgewood down in Tacoma, preaching the gospel. Whether he lives or dies, his life is eternal in Christ. And he says, I want more days, but more than my days, I want the glory of Jesus. And so I sent a message to to Tom this morning. I said, we're going to stop and pray for you. Because in this video, he goes, I don't need your pity. I need your prayers for resurrection power. So, Lord Jesus, we stop in the service like I told Tom we would, and we just ask that you would heal his body. Lord, you are the God who heals. You're the God who redeems. You're the God who restores. So do it in Jesus' name right now. Heal Tom. Set him free. Give him the years he's asking for, because I promise you, Lord, he ain't going to use it for anything but for your glory. Lord, we lift him up, believing like you have said, that you still resurrect lives from the dead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. People dying in churches, people dying of cancer. Well, guess what? The hope that we have isn't hope for this life. I don't put my hope in the rock of this planet Earth because this will disappoint me. We're all going home. We're all going to Jesus if we've called on his name. So this ain't my home. I ain't putting my faith on this rock. I'm putting on my faith in the rock that Jesus said he'd build his church on, which is the confession that he is Lord over all things. Amen? That's where I'm going to put my faith. So when I wake up and see 138 people dead, 400 injured, when I hear that Tom has cancer, do I grieve? Yes, because I'm human. Does it make me sad? Yes. Should we just say, oh, well, it'll get better someday? No. Because there can be redemption now, but it ain't going to shake my faith that Jesus is still who he said he was. If you wonder about things like that, come talk to us. Because they're good questions. Is God still who he is? How good is our news? Is it good enough to carry us through those things? Secondly, 2 Corinthians, moving forward to verse 12, the resurrection from the dead, the conversation continues. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Because if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless, and you should all go home. Sorry, I made that up. He said, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. But we should go home. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, I don't need to be here. It's this or that. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses of God, for we have testified about God that he raised from the dead. But he did not raise himself, in fact... If the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. Oh, my goodness. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are a people that most be pitied. Oh, if we only have hope in this life. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, Adam and Eve, the resurrection of the dead must come through one man. Adam let the world down. Eve let the world down. Jesus brought it back. That's another message. For as in Adam all die, so all in Christ must be made alive. Whew. More than the Easter bunny, observation two, is Jesus. He is more than the Easter bunny, because the Easter bunny's going down. (laughs) 
He's got till Jesus comes back and then that's it. He can take his eggs and take a hike. But Jesus has taken us home. He's taking us home. That's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to take you and me home. Why did he have to die? That's going to be a different sermon. Why did he have to raise from the dead? Because if he didn't defeat our sin, then we should just go home. It either happened or it didn't, the resurrection for the dead. There's a quote off this slide by a guy named Lee Strobel. If you are struggling with your faith, and I, I hope that some people in this room are not because I want you struggling with your faith, but I want to be a place where people can come who do struggle with their faith. Get it? Okay? Lee Strobel was a man that set out to disprove the existence and resurrection of Jesus. He said, I went to a psychologist friend and said, if 500 people claim to see, remember 500 people we talked about, okay? Remember 500 people claim to see Jesus after he died, it was just a hallucination. He asked that question. If 500 people claim to see Jesus after he died, it was just a hallucination. He said hallucinations are an individual event. If 500 people had seen the same hallucination, that's a bigger miracle than the resurrection. (laughs) The fact that Jesus was witnessed in real time by 500 people immediately following his death gives a lot of legitimacy to the argument. It wasn't a myth. It wasn't hundreds of years after it happened that it was written about. There was real-time accounts that Sunday morning by women. You don't think God uses women? I got another thing coming to you. The women saw him first. Mm. Lee Strobel was an atheist, but he did not arrive there overnight. He couldn't find anyone that would answer his questions about evil or suffering in the world. That's where Lee Strobel found himself. His family wasn't involved in a community of faith. He had a difficult relationship with his father, so he set out to debunk Christianity, and he knew that the truth of Christianity rested on whether or not the resurrection happened. He was smart. He was a journalist. Did Jesus really die? Did believers invent his story? Was the tomb actually empty? Did Jesus see people and did people see jesus after his resurrection if you want to know more about this there's a book called case for christ that lee strobel wrote there's a movie called case for uh, for case for christ that lee strobel was featured in but if you have questions about the resurrection check it out the information is out there but i'm here to attest to you today that jesus christ rose from the dead last point then my friend richard 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 57. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Think that through. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. They'll be raised imperishable and we will be changed for the perishable must be clothed with the imperishable it means that those things that die must be clothed with the things that do not die in the mortal clothed with immortality when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality then the saying that is written will come true like we sung and declared this morning death has been swallowed up by victory where o oh, death is your victory where o oh, death is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god he gives us victory through our lord jesus christ amen 
Third point, loser on the run. I've already seen the defeated enemy and he's on the run. He's a loser and he's on the run. The enemy is on the run. But the gospel, to keep him on the run, must be more than good advice or a good idea. It must be good news that leads to good action. What is it that I see that convinces me that death has lost its sting? I see plenty of stuff. I've seen so much stuff that would convince me that death has lost its sting, that we could be here till Christmas Eve, but you got dinner with your grandma in a little bit, so we ain't going to talk about it all right now. But guess what? There's enough evidence that death is losing its sting that could keep us here for the next eight months and longer and longer. Investigating my own brokenness in light of the exchange that Christ has made for me, David, when I've looked at it, David, and said, yeah, you in the back. When I've looked at myself, I'm just talking to you because I like you. We had ice cream the other night, and I'm just, just talking with David. When, David, when I investigated my sin in light of Christ's glory for me, it propelled me to come and do things and get out of places that looked a little bit like religious epicenters to go and meet wonderful new friends like you, David. We have a relationship because Christ shed his blood on the cross for you and me. And it's real, David. It's real. We all have relationships with one another. I've got a friend. His name is Richard. Richard McAdams, would you come up here? Give a hand for Richard real quick. I asked Richard to come because there's got to be signs of... Give me a hug. There's got to be signs of hope in the city. There has to be. If not, let's go do something different. Do you? Did you get him from 118 too? Hey, nice. Very good. Richard and I were co-workers for a minute, but we've been friends longer than that. We'll be friends forever. Uh, love Richard very much. Uh, Richard is, what's your title? I was the head of HR, man. What's your title? I'm the outreach administrator at the Seattle Union Gospel Mission. Very good. Outreach administrator. That means he's Jesus on the streets. That's what it means. Richard and I served together at Seattle's Union Gospel Mission, but back around March... Fifth, probably, I sat in a room with men from Eastside Foursquare Church, and we were planning an urban plunge. Um, I, I take groups of men and women, and we go into the city, and we live there until we find our sin has broken our hearts enough to do something about it. That's kind of what, that's my jam. That's what I like to do. Um, and so before one of these trips six years ago, just over six years ago, I was sitting with about 12 guys from Eastside Foursquare, and I said, you know, when we go to the mission, every guy that goes into the recovery program gets a badge, and his badge has has a date on it, the date he came in. And I always like looking at the date and then looking back to see what I was doing the day before that date. Because it reminds me that even today, someone's going to get redeemed tomorrow. So I got stuff to do. Does that make sense? Always fascinates me. And so I'm sharing this thought and I share with this group of guys. I said, you know what? It's like March 5th. I, you know, I bet when we get there in a week to Seattle's Union Gospel Mission in the middle of Pioneer Square that there will be a guy that's in program that isn't in program yet. So let's stop in the room like we just prayed for Tom. We just stopped and prayed. Lord, there's somebody out there that isn't there yet, but Lord, help them get there. Fast forward a few days, probably to like March 16th or 17th, and I'm in the kitchen and I'm banging trays, which is my favorite thing, cleaning the trays, and I hand the guys washing the dishes and through this little window, and I see a new guy, and his badge says something like March 13th. And I'm like, hmm, that's after March 8th. He's the answer to our prayer. <laughs> And I told him such. I said, bro, I said, you're the answer to our prayer. What's your name? He said, Richard. And then, like, and then we hit it off. 
And Richard went through a year-long recovery program. He went through a year of in, intense Christian discipleship, and now he's been on staff at the mission for three, four years. I have yet, this is, we can play the Richard game if you want to go downtown Seattle. When I address our homeless neighbors on the street, when I'm down anywhere in downtown, I just I just play this little game. It's not a game, really, but I want them to get connected. So I just said, do you guys know Richard? They said, of course we do. I can't find a man or a woman in the core of downtown that does not know. That's This is a missionary in the city. This is a missionary in the city. And, and Richard, I just wanted to thank you for coming. Thank you for being a, 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 a friend of mine. We've walked the road together. We're going to walk more. Uh, but just tell us a little bit about what was going on in your life uh, before you encountered the hope of Jesus. Well, um, <laughs> it was a really long road. Can you guys hear me? All right. I'm really nervous. I hate speaking in public. I do it all the time, though, but uh, I get nervous. Um, it was a really long road. Before I found the hope of Jesus, I was living in sin, and I was living in the darkness. Um, I grew up in a very broken home, like a lot of folks, um, with a lot of abuse, physical, sexual, mental abuse. Um, I had no guidance in my life. My parents kind of just kind of checked out, and so... Um, for me, how I dealt with it was I turned to drugs. I turned to drugs at a very young age. Um, and it was a great way to escape exactly what was going on in my life. Um, throughout, throughout life, I just uh, dove deeper and deeper and deeper and started walking with the enemy. You know, I, I just, I was done with God. Um, I didn't live in a religious home. I didn't have any discipleship. I just wanted to walk with the enemy. I spent all of my adult life just in this in this circle of vicious evilness, and I just ended up to a point in my life when I was 35 years old, um, just not caring about anything in the world. I ended up homeless. Um, all I cared about was sticking a needle in my arm. All I cared about was where I was going to get my next fix, and I did anything and everything to get that fix. I used people, I robbed people, I put guns to people's heads, um, you name it, I did it. And um, about six years ago, on March 13th, I was sleeping on a cardboard box. I had been up for about five days, um, and I just was at that point in my life where I was just done with it all. I just couldn't go on. I was at death's door, and I just said, you know what, God, if you are there, I need help. And... About half hour after I prayed, I fell asleep, and um, all of a sudden this van comes around the van, uh, corner, and it was one of the vans from the Seattle Union Gospel Mission, the search and rescue, which I oversee now. A um, group of volunteers came out, and they just jumped out, and they started talking to me and um, told me about the mission, and um, something just told me to get in that van, and I did. And uh, here I sit today now with the hope of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Richard. So on the other side of that, coming to Jesus, what are some things you've had to die to yourself um, in order to find new life in Christ, the, the, the recovery process? What's one thing that you've just had to just lay down that's been difficult? Oh, I've had to lay a lot of things down. <laughs> um, I had to lay down shame. I had to lay down guilt. I had to lay down um, pride. Yeah. I had to lay down a lot of things. I had to I had to forgive. 
I had to forgive not only my parents, but I had to forgive myself. I had to forgive the fact that that what I was doing was in the darkness and that what I was doing was bidding for the enemy. Mm -hmm. And so I had to lay all that down. And I'll tell you what, this man right here, he says that we're friends, but he's way more than that to me. He's my spiritual advisor. He baptized me six years ago. And I took him to the spot where um, where they found me that night. And um, we were talking, and um, my middle name is Michael, and I used to always go by Michael. I never used a, my first name, Richard. And we were talking, and, you know, like that night that I prayed, I was actually praying for God just to kill me and just let me go to sleep and not wake up because I just didn't want to deal with anything anymore. And he looked at me, and he's like, do you think that God probably answered your question? I looked at him, I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, do you think that God killed off Michael and resurrected Richard? And it did, he did. So, yeah. So I'm forever grateful for you. And um, I haven't always told you this, but um, I love you, Chris. You, you're an amazing man, and um, you helped me see a lot of things. Thank you, Richard. Love you, Richard, beyond uh, beyond your own story, and that's that's fantastic. Uh, in in a city that's battling this narrative that says the city's dead, run away from it. What's a sign of hope that would encourage others not only to to enter into the engagement relationship in Seattle, but in, in Everett on Casino Road? What, what's some hope you're seeing? That's that one I've been struggling with for a couple of days. Um, <laughs> um, and you know. Jesus died on the cross for us so that we can be in right relationships with our Father. But not only that, but to be in right relationships with each other. And over the years that I've been working at the Seattle Union Gospel Mission, I've noticed that the city has taken a stance and started looking to that. Before, when I was homeless, you know, the city and people would walk just right by us and just look at us or put their heads down and just shake their head and be like, keep going on. But more attention is coming to homelessness. More attention is coming to the addiction. And people are starting to realize that in order for us to actually make a dent in this, there's got to be a relation part of it. There's got to be people stopping and asking and seeing those that are out on the streets. The city, the city, you know, before they wouldn't even take notice to us at the Seattle Union Gospel Mission being a uh, religious organization, a, a church. They'd be like, oh, we can't deal with you guys. You guys get back. But they call us. We, they keep us really busy on the outreach team. I get calls all the time, Every, even on the weekend. In fact, I'm coming over here. I got a call um, from the city about helping people out and stuff. You know, it's that relational piece. It's the city watching and seeing and realizing the good news, seeing and realizing that we are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't always go. I am not a perfect Christian, of course. Um, I am broken, and I am. That's I why, have. That's why we fit together. <laughs> I, I, I I sin every day, but the good news is that I wake up every morning, and it's a new day. It's it's a clean day, and that I get to um, be His hands and feet. Amen. Amen. 
Thank you, Richard. It's uh, it's good what God's doing in way of resurrection. It's not only in Seattle. It's not what's happened already, but it's what's happening. We got one last picture that I want to show. Uh, boy, I love my weeks because I I just get to run around and and, and proclaim the resurrected Jesus. Uh, not only to to people who follow him already, but to to everybody. We had two meetings this week. This was one of them. The first one was right here. There's an organization, a group that's called the Connect Casino Road, and it's a collaboration of all the faith-based and other nonprofits that exist within this square. And we get together and we talk about what do we do about kids in this neighborhood? How do we deal with crime and drug addiction and abuse in this neighborhood? And it's a collaboration of believers in Jesus coming alongside the city, like the mission is doing with the city of Seattle, and saying, we don't want to oppose you. We want to find places. We're not going to agree on everything, but we want to find places of commonality, and we want to show you that our God is real. We want to show you his resurrection power. And so we had a meeting this week talking about what to do about youth, and then we had my favorite meeting on Wednesday over on the other side of the building, and hand-in-hand uh, in, hand in Casino Road Kids Ministries and the YMCA and the Boys and Girls Club and South Everett Foursquare Church and Child Strive and all these other organizations were present talking about how do we help kids in the city and not everyone at the meeting is a believer necessarily but there's a lot of spirit-filled people in that room and we're talking and dreaming and scheming and this is the beautiful thing that came from it because there's a narrative about this neighborhood that's just entirely false it's it's owned by this neighborhood it's perpetuated by the community around if you've ever told anyone you go to church on casino road you could probably tell me things that you've heard in the beautiful thing is that we get to help resurrect a reputation not just a people but a place we get to resurrect it and there's this whole group of people richard's doing it with red and with randy downtown and we're doing it up here but we're changing a reputation working with todd and working with tyrone working with chris nixon working with others to say there's a better narrative there's a better story to tell there's a resurrected story of this neighborhood And here's the imaginative part. Here's the good idea part that becomes good news that leads to good action. What if Casino Road was the crown jewel neighborhood of all of Everett? What if this neighborhood was the place where people came to run because they just couldn't get enough of the goodness that was happening here? That's a good idea. There's some good news. We could tell you more stories of good things that are going on with the young leaders of this generation that are here But what about when it happens, when the resurrected king resurrects a neighborhood? Amen? That's the vision. That's the life. That's the hope. We do it together next to each other. Richard in Seattle, all of us in Everett. Some of you are missionaries to Seattle. Every day you go down there. Every day you're in the city. Some of you are in the city up here every day. Brian Holmes, Jolene Holmes, missionaries in the city. God's called us here. He's called us to work together to celebrate the resurrected king. The resurrection happened. I stake my claim on it my whole life. Amen. And that's not a reason to beat people over the head with truth. It's a, it's a reason to extend the same grace that I found when I considered my own brokenness. Right? And these are relationships that we find when we get over ourselves and just go out and meet people. You know, maybe it's a few days from now you're going to meet your Richard McAdams. You know, lifelong friends just in the city. You know? Sloshing dishes back and forth in the kitchen, right? So let's just pause and consider as we close the resurrected king. We don't do this often, but I think that it's important today 
for each of us to consider our place with him. I'm not going to ask you to stand or raise your hand or look up or anything, but I just want you to sit with Jesus for just a minute and ask the question. Let him ask you the question, in fact, the same question he asked Peter in the Gospels. In the account of the good news, the same question Jesus asked Peter. It's the same question Jesus is asking us. Who do you say that I am? He would ask each of us today, who do we say that you are? And if you are legitimately, genuinely in a place where you're still grappling and struggling like Lee Strobel did to say, is this even true? Is this even a good, is this even good news? Is Jesus just a story? If you have questions like that, come and ask. Because they'll be met with open listening ears. Not hearts that are bent on correcting or refuting, but listening ears. Someone to weep with, someone to tell your unimaginable story to. And you will find grace and you will find rest for your souls. That's exactly what Jesus promised us when we lay our burdens down. But let's ask ourselves this morning, who do we say that he is? And if you have yet to make a decision to say, Jesus is the king of my life, absolutely everything upon, upon everything beyond everything else. If you've yet to make that declaration and you want to, it's easy. You just do what the Bible says to do, which says if we believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess with our mouths that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Just confess, believe. Believe. That's it. He'll, he'll trade the great exchange. It's everything. He will take all of our sin for all of his glory. That's the exchange. That's why we're here on Easter. So, Lord, if there's anyone here, I pray that you would give them courage to make that confession. Just say, Jesus, I believe. I lay my sin down. I can't be the Lord of my life anymore. You have to be. Just If that's where you're at and you just say those things, confess that. And then if you want, tell somebody, tell a friend, tell someone. If you're, if you're struggling because you, that used to be the case and it's not anymore, tell somebody, come and pray with us, come and talk with us. We just want to be real broken people that are really saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we give it all to you. You gave it all for us. You did not leave one thing on the table. You breathed your last on a cross. You went to death in a grave and you resurrected and we give you glory and praise you ascended and you sent your spirit to fill us so that we could be good news that leads to good action that leads to the redemption of people and cities lord we thank you i pray for richard i pray for the mission Uh, i pray for connect casino road and casino road kids ministries and hand in hand and south everett foursquare and city life and lord just do it we're here say we're here lord we give you glory We give you praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said... You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.